Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The greatest war ever waged, the most intense battle ever fought, the most heart-rending conflict there ever was, with the most resounding ramifications throughout history, took place in the heart of a man. If we don't understand this, then we have very little comprehension of what happened in Gethsemane two millennia ago. The salvation of humanity was weighed in the balance. If Jesus said, my will be done, we would not be here tonight. There would be no Christian gatherings. In fact, we would all be hopeless, lost, condemned to be under the judgment of God himself to spend eternity apart from God. If Jesus said, thy will be done, then there would be the blooming of life offered to us. The restored relationship with a living God who offered us the greatest joy of life itself. That we would have an eternity stored up with God, with glory forever and ever. We would have the ultimate hope. So it would seem that the decision of one who loves us would be very obvious. But as we read the passage tonight, it was not so obvious. It says, Jesus was in tremendous anguish. And he said to his disciples, I am sorrowful unto death. Socrates, the philosopher, faced his death calmly, dispassionately. The Jewish 
the Jewish martyrs praised God as they were executed. Stephen prayed that his persecutors would be forgiven as they crushed him with stones. Polycarp and John Huss were burned, yet they did not waver in their faith. Countless Christians went to their deaths in the name of Christ with what seemed like greater courage than Jesus himself. Is it that Christ, who is wavering in the garden, Lord, if it's possible, if there's any other way, could you bring that to pass? Was it possible that he had greater fear than those martyrs? Is it possible that the creator of the world, of the galaxies, of the universe, was frailer than the creatures he created? No. A thousand times no. Because Jesus wasn't facing the death that they faced. He was facing something infinitely worse. See, Jesus wasn't afraid to taste the death that they had tasted. He lived under the shadow of death his entire life. When he was an infant, his family fled to save his life from the king of the Jews who would murder infants and toddlers to make certain he had killed the anointed one. When Jesus began his ministry, as before he's baptized, John the Baptist himself says to his disciples as he points to Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When the Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted, each one of those temptations was Satan's call to Jesus to bypass the cross. But Jesus stood firm in the word of God each time. The mission statement of Jesus' life could be summed up in his words. The Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Even the high points in his life, like when Peter proclaimed, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. The next words that come out of Jesus' mouth is about his death. And the Son of Man will be put to death by elders and scribes and chief priests. And when Peter tries to rebuke Jesus, saying, no, that could never be. It is Jesus who sees Satan behind those words to try to again say, you do not need to go to the cross. But Jesus rebukes. A few days earlier, Mary broke forth a flask of ointment, precious oils. The disciples were upset and Jesus said, do you not? You don't understand. She's anointing me for my burial. 
It was only moments before he entered the garden that he said to his disciples, as he took the Passover bread, this is my body broken for you. The Passover cup, this is the cup of my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus lived under the shadow of the cross. He was not afraid of physical death. There was something much greater that disturbed him, that led to this intense sorrow. And that was spiritual death. For he was going to confront what it was like to be spiritually dead and separated from his father. We have that confirmed in Jesus' words when he says, Father, if there's any possible way, take this cup from me. The cup, over and over again in Scripture, represented the cup of God's judgment. Job 21.20 is one of the clearest verses. He says, Let their own eyes see their destruction. Let them drink the cup of the wrath of the Almighty. Jesus said, is there any way I don't have to drink this cup? He didn't fear the physical death, the torture, the humiliation. He feared the cup of God's wrath for all of our sin being poured upon him. If that was possible, could I go another way? Now, Jesus took that and endured that on the cross as faithfully and as courageously as any martyr. He was separated from the Father. He was separated from the Spirit. He experienced spiritual death. And throughout that, he's so often thinking of other people. The soldiers crucifying him. The, the Sanhedrin that had put, sentenced him. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He thought of his mother. Woman, this is your son. He thought of a thief who had just before been mocking him and ridiculing him and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He He endured the cross and all that entailed. So what was happening in the garden? I believe that Jesus was facing and understanding, perhaps for the first time, what the judgment of God would actually entail. If one is going to truly volunteer He or she needs to understand everything that they are committing to. How often have I heard somebody saying at the end of a volunteer role, if I had known now, if I had known then what I know now, I never would have volunteered. I'd never do that again. Jesus wouldn't be volunteering if he didn't understand the full panorama of all that the judgment of God would entail. And I believe in the garden, he saw it clearly. Everything he would have to endure 
then he would have to say yes to God's will. So what possibly did he see? Perhaps he saw hell itself. Jesus knew what hell was about. He warned about it many times. For him, it was the most awful. It was the worst possible judgment that could happen. He spoke of those who would weep and wail, the gnashing of teeth. He spoke of it as an outer darkness. He spoke of it as the garbage pit with endless fire. He warned that it would be better to never be born than to experience hell. He said it was better to cut off your hand or pluck out your eye than be cast into hell of fire. Jesus knew what hell was. He saw that he would experience hell because of judgment of our sin upon him. Jesus never knew what it was like to be separated from the Father. He had an eternal relationship with God the Father and God the Son, a love relationship where they shared life, they upheld one another, they supported one another, they thought of one another, they honored one another and glorified each other. That is the relationship in which Jesus Christ lived from eternity past. But he knew to take sin, that he would be severed from his Father and his Father's love. For a holy God cannot embrace those with sin. If we think of our worst nightmare, it is separation from our loved ones. It is the death of a loved one. Tony Dungy, a well-known football coach and speaker, lost his son in a suicide. And before a gathering of coaches and football players and media, room full, he said this. If God had talked to me before James' death and said my son's death would help all these people, it would save them, it would heal their sin, I would have to take your son. I would have said, no, I can't do that. But that is what God did. God the Father had to give his son, had to say yes at the cost of his son. The son in the garden, in all of his humanity now, had to say, yes, I will experience the most heart-rending, spirit-rending experience possible, separation from my Father. 
as horrible as it is for us to think of our separation from loved ones, we're human. We are limited. We have not had these love relationships from all eternity. Jesus Christ did. When he went to the cross, he would have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he would say, I thirst. And in the book of John, thirst is to be without water. The water represented the life that the Spirit of God himself brings. He had no life in him. Jesus hesitated. Like Tony Dungy, but he said yes. The third thing I believe that Jesus understood so clearly was when the sin of the world was placed on him, he would be like a sinner. In fact, he would become sin, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might have his righteousness. What is it like to be perfectly holy? Uh, We don't understand it. What is it like to be perfectly holy and pure and sinless and, and then sin? And have your holiness tainted in such a way that the Father shuns you. But it wasn't one sin. Even though one sin separates us from the perfection of a holy God, it was all of my sin that was placed on him. And it was all of your sin that was placed on him. It was all of the sin of everyone that's living today that was placed on him, and all of the sin of anyone who lived before us that was placed on him, and anyone who will live after us that was placed on him. A holy... Now, becoming sin itself. I believe Bishop Fulton Sheen captures this uh, better than anyone I've read. He said... As sufferers look to the past and to the future, so the Redeemer looked to the past and to all the sins that had ever been committed. He looked also to the future, to every sin that would be committed. It was not the past beatings of pain that he drew upon to the present, but rather every open act of evil and every hidden thought of shame. The sin of Adam was there when as the head of humanity he lost for all men the heritage of God's grace. Cain was there, purple in the sheet of his brother's blood. The abominations of Sodom and Gomorrah were there. The forgetfulness of his own people who fell down before false gods was there. The coarseness of the pagans who had rebelled even against the natural law was there. All sins were there, sins committed in the country, that made nature blush, sins committed in the city, in the city's fetid atmosphere of sin, sins of the young for whom the tender heart of Christ was pierced, sins of the old who should have passed the age of sinning. 
sins committed in the darkness where it was thought the eyes of God could not pierce. Sins committed in the light that made even the wicked shudder. Sins too awful to be mentioned. Sins too terrible to be named. Sin, sin, sin. Once this pure, sinless mind of our Savior had brought all of this iniquity of the past upon his soul as if it were his own, he now reached into the future. He saw that his coming into the world with the intent to save men would intensify the hatred of some against God. He saw the betrayals of future Judases, the sins of heresies that would read Christ, that would rend Christ's body. He saw the broken marriage vows, lies, slanders, adulteries, murders, apostasies. All these crimes were thrust into his hands as if he had committed them. Evil desires laid upon his heart as if he himself had given them birth. Lies and schisms rested on his mind as if he himself had conceived them. Blasphemies seemed to be on his lips as if he had spoken them. From the north, south, east, and west, the foul miasma of the world's sin rushed upon him like a flood. Samson-like, he reached up and pulled the whole guilt of the world upon himself as if he were guilty paying for the debt in our name so that we might once more have access to the Father. He was, so to speak, mentally preparing himself for the great sacrifice, laying upon his sinless soul the sins of a guilty world. To most men, the burden of sin is as natural as the clothes they wear, but to him, the touch of that which men take so easily was the veriest agony. So why did Jesus say, thy will be done? It's We see it in the prayer that was read in John 17. He loved his Father. He said, Father, glorify me now that I may glorify you. Jesus loved the Father. He lived to glorify the Father. He died to glorify the Father. He prayed, Lord, hallowed be thy name. That's what Jesus' heart was all about. He wanted the world to see the Father as he saw the Father. He wanted the world to lift up his Father's name as being holy, supreme above all, to be honored and worshipped. He wanted us to know the Father. He wanted us to understand, to get just a glimpse of the love of the Father that is incomprehensible. That we might know the heights and depths and width and breadth of the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. As great as the sacrifice was of Jesus to give his life for us, was not the Father's sacrifice even greater? If you had to choose between giving your life or the life of the Son, whose life would you give? John 3.16 doesn't say 
Jesus so loved the world. It says God so loved the world that he gave his son. Romans 5 doesn't say, but Jesus demonstrates his love toward us. He did. It says, but God demonstrates his love toward us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. See, Jesus knew that his death would magnify the love of God. We would gain an entrance into that love. He loved the Father and he said yes so that we would love the Father and know the Father's love. There's a second reason he said, thy will be done. Yes, I will pay the price. It's because the same reason he washed the disciples' feet. At the beginning of that passage, it says, Jesus, having loved his own to the end, got up, took off his robes, and wrapped the towel around himself. Jesus took off his regal robes, wrapped humanity around himself, did much more than wash our feet. He went to the cross because he loved us to the end. What does it mean to love us to the end? Partly it seemed he loved us with every breath he had to the very end of his life. And he will love us to the end of eternity. For he says, lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. But I think it also means he loved us to the end, to the fullness that love is possible. Jesus fought the greatest war with the largest ramifications for all of history. He was sorrowful unto death, but he said yes because he loves God and because he loves you. Our Father, Jesus died that we might know your love. I pray that this evening we have a glimpse into that love that allows us to be showered in how much you love us, how much you love those around you. And Lord, that that might melt our hearts and draw us to be in love with you. In Jesus' name, for his glory we live. Amen.